The emergence of COVID-19 has forced the legal industry to rapidly undergo a fundamental transformation. I'm Jack Newton, CEO and co-founder of Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal software provider. In each episode of Daily Matters, we'll explore what this new normal means for law firms, how legal professionals can find success while working remotely, and how lawyers can best serve their clients during this unprecedented situation. Today, we're joined by Kat Moon, Director of Innovation Design for the Program of Law and Innovation at Vanderbilt Law School. Kat, thanks so much for being here today. It is a pleasure to join you today. Thank you for asking me. Uh, great to have you here. Uh, Kat, first and foremost, how are you and your family doing? We are good. Everyone is healthy. Um, for the most part, we are sane. We are um, four big humans coexisting mostly peacefully in a house together. I have um, a husband and two teenagers and um, one is a senior in high school. So this has been um, definitely an interesting time for her. And then I have a freshman son. So um, it gets really interesting when we all have to be on a Zoom conference at exactly the same time and our really pitiful internet connection um, fails. <laughs> so, you know, I, I had to, <laughs> I've got uh, three kids uh, and my wife, and I actually had to upgrade my internet last week because they're doing Zoom calls for school. My wife's doing uh, her full-time job as well. And, you know, what felt like an adequate internet connection uh, for Netflix and some emails in the evening was, was not, uh, not doing the job for me uh, in the uh, COVID-19 era. I feel you. I do. Sadly, we, um, we have fiber to the road and then we're a half mile off the road and so i'm guessing at&t would be happy to extend that fiber optic cable for you know a sum of money right um, so. you, you've got the literal <laughs> last mile or maybe last half mile problem that last half mile problem yeah but if you know uh, if that's the worst i have to complain about um i absolutely right. will be grateful in, in the grand scheme of things yes. that's that's doing okay yes so cat what's on your mind the most right now well if you'd asked me this question last week i would have said getting through the end of the semester with my course so i was mm -hmm. teaching legal operations um, i introduced the course this semester at vanderbilt and it's an experiential course and so you know finishing the semester solely online was challenging. I think less so because of my course and more so just because of what we're all going through right now and also considering what my students are going through right now. And so my students are still very much top of mind. So they're entering exam period, which I don't give an exam, but that's been um, a really a source of stress and anxiety for them in this time and then you know all my students are second and third year students and so they are um, next wondering what their job situation is and what's going to happen with the bar exam so i've been hyper focused on just kind of watching what's happening in those areas so that i can provide as much support and help to my students as possible and, and maybe just pulling on that thread what's your latest take in terms of how things will will shake yeah. out for this cohort of students yeah so um i think it's really impossible to predict right now how things are going to shake out and i think that's um you know we are in this moment of incredible ambiguity and by that i mean more than just simply uncertainty uncertainty absolutely but we're facing multiple potential futures, right? 
And so I've really been trying to figure out how I can empower my students to be planning for different contingencies and to feel empowered um, and to really focus on what can they do in this moment to, um, you know, make sure that they're going to have a plan in place depending on what future right. unfolds. Um, I will insert really quickly here that a few weeks ago I launched a podcast, which I've been wanting to do for a long time. And finally I had two colleagues at Vanderbilt who were like, let's create a podcast for law students. And so it's called zooming through law school. I'll give it a little um, pitch there. Yeah. But I, I mentioned it particularly here because last week we interviewed Paula Davis lack, who is an attorney who um, has has left the practice to study positive psychology and now does resilience training and coaching for the legal profession. Oh, and she came on and great, gave some great advice for what students and really anybody in this moment can do um, to build their own resilience and really try to thrive in the midst of all this ambiguity. And, yep. you know, one of her big takeaways was planning for multiple contingencies, really thinking about if this happens, what can I do in this moment? And um, so I've actually embraced that <laughs> in the past week and really been focused on that. So I've been thinking about um, tools, you know, I can give students to really help them plan for these contingencies because I've, you know, I really hesitate to say, I mean, I've already seen students, some have been getting fantastic communication from their firms saying, we still want you, we're going to figure out how to take this virtual or we're going to, we're still going to pay you, but we're going to start later or, you know, a myriad mm -hmm. um, sort of um, plans there. And then I have some students who haven't heard a word. And so yeah. they really, you know, um, I think it's the lack of communication and transparency on all fronts that um, really makes it so much harder to plan yeah. in this moment. Absolutely. And, and that, that concept you were mentioning uh, a, a few minutes ago, this idea of planning for, mm -hmm multiple potential futures, I think is a really powerful one because there's some people, uh, and, and many of us I think are, are guilty of this, when you look at the amount of uncertainty that's out there, you can quickly go to a place of saying, I can't plan for, for anything because who knows yes. how things are gonna play out, but being really deliberate about thinking, you know, what, what are four or five of the most likely scenarios? What's the yes. best case scenario? What's a worst case scenario? And what, what lies in between? And then start planning for each of those you can start seeing what are some of the commonalities across those scenarios. What are some of the investments or choices that you might want to make regardless of which of those scenarios we end up yes. uh, landing in. So I, I think that's actually a, a really powerful concept. Yeah. So I've been kind of preaching for a while that embracing ambiguity is actually a superpower because um, to pick up on a point you made just a moment ago, often it, our lizard brain response to uncertainty and really too many potential futures um, is to shut down. Yeah. Like we just, we just don't want to deal and, um, or to move forward without a whole lot of intention because um, our higher powered thinking has really shut down. And um, you know, it's, it's an act of real mindfulness to get yourself in the moment and say, okay, in this moment, I'm safe. I'm okay. And let's think about exactly what you said. Um, what are the different contingencies and what are commonalities between them? And, and I can give a, a concrete example, I think, that applies to third years right now who are approaching graduation and about to take the bar exam. So 
a lot of uncertainty. Is there going to be a bar exam? If there's not, what does that look like? How do I enter the practice? And so we do see states popping up and putting forth plans for this. Um, and so for students who are planning to take the bar in a state that hasn't yet opined what they're going to do, one way to think through different contingencies is to start looking around what have others done? Right. And this actually can inform you like odds are my state's going to follow one of these three or four max paths. Right. And so you can start thinking through what does this look like for me if A happens, if B happens, if C happens. Right. Um, so I think that's, you know, one example of how you can really try to take yeah. some control. Those, those precedents are being formed. You can yes. look at, uh, you know, I, I think even a macro level, if you want to know what's going to happen, with a profession, look at what's going on in New York because they're probably three or four yes. weeks ahead of the rest of the country in terms of how the the crisis is playing out. Um, so sh shifting gears a, a little bit, Kat, um, maybe popping up a level, can you tell us a bit more about the, the program on law and innovation at Vanderbilt and uh, your, your title, I'm jealous of your title, it sounds so cool, Director of Innovation <laughs> Design. Tell us a little bit about your role yeah. and, and the program overall. Yeah, so the program has been around, I think the program is officially in year seven. And so our current dean, Chris Guthrie, launched it um, really as a way to start bringing into the Vanderbilt Law School curriculum those subjects and areas of study that complement and supplement the traditional law school curriculum. And when I joined, there were three core classes that have been taught consistently and part of my objective and the mission I have in the role of director of innovation design is to be constantly developing the curriculum and so each year I have a minimum goal of introducing one new course and um, so I have 12 to 15 courses ultimately on the drawing board and um, as we successfully design and launch. Um, I also bring in new faculty to help enrich the curriculum and it's a whole lot of fun. I think that our primary objective is to give as many Vanderbilt Law students as possible exposure to the range of um, these new ways of thinking. And while I wish we didn't use the phrase kind of alternative or alt, um, I think that's okay. Mm -hmm. I think that really what we do, and this is how I introduce it to students, what we do is give them tools and methods and systems and processes that supplement and complement the traditional curriculum. And I think that um, law school's primary function, I believe, will always be to train folks how to think like a lawyer and the core of legal reasoning and legal research and writing and all those core skills. And um, there are a whole lot of other tools and skills that we need to really be holistic, thriving legal professionals. And so Poly, the program on law and innovation, really endeavors to discover those best tools and methods and bring those into the curriculum in a way that makes sense for about to be practicing lawyers. And so this year, for instance, I introduced legal operations, which I'm co-teaching with the director of legal operations and chief of staff for the Office of General Counsel at Vanderbilt University. I believe we are the only U.S. university who has such a person, the director of legal operations. 
which is even more interesting considering that our whole Office of General Counsel is only about 10 to 12 people. And so um, to have a small department have that strong a presence really, I think, speaks very strongly about Vanderbilt's commitment to operational excellence. And so Lizzie Shilliam, that person, was director of legal ops at Nike for more mm. than a dozen years. And so she set up their legal ops operation. And so it has been phenomenal to have the opportunity to co-teach this course with her. And so that's a great example of what we're trying to do is bring in these people with really rich practical experience in these important areas and give our students a chance just to dig in and get their hands dirty. Um, even so if it's, it's via Zoom these days. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And you, you know, as a bit of a tangent, I'm, I'm more for uh, anyone who's curious about this, this yeah. emerging area in law. What, what is legal operations in a nutshell? So, well, I think legal operations, um, you know, if you look, for instance, at CLOCK, um, CLOCK.org, they have um, Corporate Legal Operations Consortium, I think is what it stands for. I think for. you're right. Yep. I think I'm getting that right. Um, <laughs> they have published, and they just revised it, so, um, and I haven't memorized the, kind of the revised wheel, but they have, they have published, I think, a wheel, a graphic that does a great job of explicating sort of the buckets of knowledge and activity that go in that go into a really highly functioning um, legal operations department and so it ranges everywhere from data to technology to communication um, and I think they are building now and acknowledging that diversity um, in staffing and execution mm -hmm. is also part of that role. And so legal operations really seeks to fill the business function and bring um, process and systems operational excellence to what a legal department does. And you are also seeing more and more folks within law firms filling a similar role. I'm, I'm seeing that there are distinctions in what they do, but also a whole lot of commonalities. So it's gonna be interesting to kind of see how the law firm legal operations um, role evolves. You're seeing that title more right. than often. Yeah, um, yeah, it's such an interesting it, area and, and rapidly evolving. It is, I mean, I think a very powerful one, you know, the approach I've taken in my class, most of my students, I have, 20 students in the class, and most of them, the vast majority, are going to go work, um, start off as, a, as an associate in a large corporate law firm. And so we actually took the perspective of the law department legal operations function, and I did this very intentionally because they have now essentially been in the shoes of their clients, um, because more and more... Um, a client facing person from a legal department is the ops person. The right. ops person, you know, is the one who's negotiating um, RFPs and really interfacing and um, making those buy decisions on behalf of, of departments. And so for my students to really understand operationally what matters to the client is going to empower them to serve them better. And it's been um, really, really interesting to give them this perspective. 
I hope yeah, I can, so I, as well. I can imagine but... <laughs> that being really, a really powerful yeah. uh, perspective to, to be yes. closer to the the client perspective and being able to serve them better on the other side of yes of, of graduation. Um, Kat, I, I I haven't really spoken to anyone inside law schools on this podcast yet. You touched on a few aspects of what you're seeing mm-hmm. on the front lines of of the COVID nineteen crisis from inside a law school, but can you maybe go a bit more in depth in terms of what you're seeing? You know, in terms of you know what's going on with the students, how the classes are being delivered. And, you know, in particular for your, your third years, how they're thinking about entering the, the workforce? Yes. So, um, you know, there are a couple of big takeaways from this moment. So we're about a month into the crisis in terms mm-hmm. of its impact on um, delivery of legal education, um, which I realized, I will, I will make this observation. So Richard Suskind Um, has opined in his latest book that asked the question, are courts a place or a service? And I frankly think we're all asking ourselves this right now because, um, you know, we're, we're delivering a legal education no longer from a place, but we still must deliver the service. Right. So I think we face exactly the same challenge. And so with that said, um, you know, this shift to online has been a shift a lesson in emergency teaching, right? So I would not call what we're doing, um, you know, the highest and best online teaching and giving our students the best online learning experience because at Vanderbilt, we literally had a week to go. And while some folks I think were definitely prepared in terms of their comfort level and knowledge of technology and, and frankly how they teach to make that shift relatively seamlessly, a lot of folks were not, and that's not a criticism at all. It's simply an observation, right? Um, because right. this is this is not how we normally have to exist, and our students don't normally have to consume content and consume learning in this way. And so, I think that understanding that's our context, I think, frames really everything that flows from this. Um, you know, we are, as we've discussed already, in this moment of considerable ambiguity and uncertainty. And so our students, um, I think, are having to navigate all of this. What is already a highly stressful situation um, really suddenly kind of turned on its head. Um, And so things that shouldn't be stressful right now are. And so really kind of having to reprioritize things, I think, has been um, a considerable challenge I will observe kind of top of mind for every student I've talked to, not just my own, but I've talked to students really across the country over the past few weeks, um, is really understanding what the expectations are from their school and from their professors. What's it gonna take for me to pass this course? So a lot of schools have gone from graded to pass fail. So that's one thing. Um, And there are a whole lot of ramifications to that. Um, but what does pass look like? Or what does grading look like if they're still grading? Um, what, what are exams gonna look like when they're delivered online? And I think because everyone is in sort of triage mode, um, there probably kind of universally hasn't been a consistency in communication and transparency that would have been ideal and that would have happened had this process been planned from the get-go instead of an emergency plan um, 
with all that said, I'm seeing, you know, considerable um, rising to the occasion kind of across the spectrum from both students and faculty and really folks digging in to make the best of it. One of my favorite observations that students have shared is the fact that um, they are seeing a side of their professors that really is in many ways deepening their connection because they are often seeing their professors in a much more human setting. Right. Um, so at, at Vanderbilt, for example, for the first couple of weeks, professors could actually go in, into campus and record their classes or deliver their Zoom sessions in an empty classroom. So there were folks who put on the tie and went into the classroom and spoke to the empty classroom as if their students were sitting in it. Um, well, that's not happening anymore. Now everybody is sitting like I am in their house. Um, you're probably gonna see my cat jump up any minute and or or a kid or something um and you know and you have the awkward i've i've been guilty of awkward technology failures that you know once it took me 18 full minutes to get everything working on zoom before we could commence <laughs> a class um i will spare you the details but it's true and i consider myself fairly technology savvy um so students have said they really have appreciated kind of seeing their professors just be normal people. And, and I think that works and really deepens that connection and their level of trust and admiration for them because, um, you know, professors are already these people who um, our students assume we're smart and they really enjoy learning from us. And then when they see us as just normal humans, um, that relatability just kind of deepens yeah. those connections. And so, I, I see that as this kind of silver lining to the, so much of the rest of this is that it's been just incredibly stressful <laughs> for everyone. Yeah. It, so, it, it's, uh, it's a flavor of that, that experience you, you have at an elementary school of running across mm -hmm. your elementary school teacher at the yes. grocery store or something yes. like, oh, you're, moment, you're a human you're like, being? Oh, right. right. <laughs> we, we thought you just stepped into the closet at the end of the day and right. waited for the next class. So, um, and it's interesting exactly. too that... That, that appreciation for people and seeing the more human side of, yes. of people. I've heard uh, several guests on, on this podcast comment on that being an interesting aspect of being a lawyer these days as well, that they feel mm -hmm. like they're building stronger connections with their clients and their clients are getting to see them, you know, in, in their homes again with their uh, kids or cats or dogs uh, and yes. maybe all the above uh, jumping into the, the zoom calls and so on. So it's kind of an interesting interesting moment I think that uh, a lot of people are feeling is is almost paradoxically deepening our bonds with people amidst this social distancing and and remote mode of interacting with one another and Kat, Kat maybe to to think about another aspect of your uh, your work as mm -hmm. as director of the Poly Institute there at, at Vanderbilt you you also do work with lawyers in your yes. in your role, and and that's again something that sounds uh, a bit innovative and and out of the ordinary. Um, tell me a little bit about that uh, that part of the program and and your work yes. there. Yes, yeah, so the Poly Institute is designed to essentially take our innovation curriculum designed at the JD level and transform that to be delivered to practicing legal professionals. So we actually serve not just lawyers, but anyone in the legal profession. 
And, um, and typically our workshops have been at least 30% folks who do not have a JD or are not practicing lawyers. So it's been a really nice mix. The, you know, what has been obvious to me for a long time. So I practiced for almost 20 years before I started teaching at Vanderbilt. And I've always been deeply interested in my own professional development. And as a lawyer, I've also had to take continuing legal education and um, CLE, um, which, you know, essentially across the board has a pretty bad rap. Um, and I think that how we view professional formation and professional development in the legal profession um, has not received the attention and care it deserves um, culturally from our profession. So it's always been a strong interest of mine to do something about that. And um, an obvious thing to me is law schools have this incredible platform and we can just look next door at Vanderbilt to the Owen School of Business and see that they have a very highly developed, um, rich offering of, of executive education for business professionals. So the obvious question is why aren't law schools doing the same thing mm -hmm. to offer to their alumni and to other practicing legal professionals? It seems so obvious and frankly, it's another source of revenue. And every yep. school <laughs> is looking for right. ways um, to make money because everything is a cost center. Nothing is a profit center. Um, right. So our dean agreed that we really have this opportunity to create very engaging, highly interactive, dare I say it, innovative programming for legal professionals, practicing legal professionals. And so he gave me a platform and we started by creating and launching a series of weekend long immersion workshops that were really intense two day, get in a room with about a dozen people and a couple of professionals who've been doing the work at hand for years and just figure it out. And so that was what we launched about a year ago and had plans for three more this year. Those are now not going to happen live for obvious right. reasons. Um, and about third on my list of priority priorities was creating an online platform for the Poly Institute. That is now number one, um, again, for obvious reasons. Right. So I've been getting requests from around the world since we launched for online asynchronous programming for people who can't be here in person. And so now this has just become a priority. And I'm, you know, I've, I feel deeply that, um, we have an ethical obligation to really be committed to lifelong learning as legal professionals. And, and I do believe most lawyers are deeply engaged at the practice level. So when it comes to their practice area, um, where I see opportunity and frankly deficit is learning and all these things around, you know, the, what I'm going to refer because it really helps for um, this conversation to the Delta model for lawyer competency. Um, so the Delta model, um, and I'm part of the working group that has um, come up with this framework for describing and identifying the skills that make a holistic, thriving 21st century lawyer. Um, I, it I, is, 
I've yeah. heard you describe this Delta yeah. model before, yes. Kat, and I, I think it's just so <laughs> useful and such a, a powerful model. So look for Well, thank to you. Well, and it really helps me talk about what we're doing at the Poly Institute because the Delta is um, a triangle. So I'm making a triangle with my hands. Um, it's a triangle um, with three sides and the base is the practice. It's what, mm -hmm. it's how to think like a lawyer. It's all the things that we consider traditional lawyering about. Yeah. Um, the right hand side is process. So it is business. It is data analytics. It is process improvement It is human centered design. It is legal project management. The left hand side is people. It is all the quote soft skills, emotional intelligence, communication, collaboration, the ability to regulate ourselves, the ability to regulate our relationships with others. And so we believe that the three sides of the Delta really have equal importance in a general way um, for holistic, excellent lawyering in the 21st century. And so through the Poly Institute, um, we offer programming that touches on the process side and touches on the people side. So um, again, assuming that most lawyers are really good at getting the continuing education and professional development they need in their practice, um, most of us need access to really quality content that covers the process and the people side. And so that's what we endeavor to do at the Poly Institute. Yeah, the, you know, it's interesting even using that Delta framework to think about the challenges lawyers are facing in the COVID-19 crisis. It's really that left and right side of the triangle, thinking yes. about the, the people and process. And you can lean yes. on the same practice of law skill set that you developed in school, but learning new tools, deploying new ways of mm -hmm. working with your clients, deploying new ways of uh, leading in your law firm feels like the place that most people are, are really going to, to struggle. Yes. I, and I, I agree. And that, um, again, is not judgment as much as observation. And I think that um, there are a lot of historical and cultural reasons why that is so. I mean, we can just start by looking at the law school curriculum. Mm -hmm. It's all about the practice. And um, the folks who get some really good exposure to process in people do if they, for instance, get to take a clinical class. Um, but if you look across the law school curriculum outside of programs like poly, which exists at other schools. We're not, Vanderbilt is by no means alone in offering this kind of programming, but um, also consider that the number of students who get to take those courses is pretty small. So right. all of my classes are limited to anywhere from 16 to 24 students. Um, you know, we have 150 in a class. Um, so, you know, do the math, it's, <laughs> it's a small percentage. Um, so I think, you know, we're graduating a lot of students who haven't had exposure to these things and then they go into the practice and, you know, how intentional is that kind of training in a typical law firm? I'm just going to put that out there as a rhetorical question. Yeah. <laughs> that's a, and that's a big one to leave hanging out there. And I'm, I'm curious for, for our listeners that might want to dig a bit for, further into this, yeah. this, this topic. Um, and, and maybe they, they have the misfortune of not being enrolled in your, your class. Are there ways they can tap into this and, and learn a little bit more? 
Yes. So um, Allison Carroll, who is a colleague at Northwestern, a clinical Mm -hmm. professor at Northwestern, um, is also in the working group for the Delta model. And she and I are collaborating on creating a set of tools and resources that anyone can pick up and use um, around the Delta model to really first self-assess and then start using to map out your professional development and growth. And so the website is designyourdelta.com. We are working feverishly to create some resources to share there. And, you know, one simple way we're going to start is simply by identifying resources that already exist in the world that speak directly to specifically the people and process side. So books, articles, videos, online courses, I really encourage people to think much more expansively about how they approach their own professional development. You don't just hop on your bar association's website and see what CLEs they're offering. You've really got to think outside of the box when it comes to the process and people side. I will also point out, because I take every opportunity I can to point this out, that a lot of CLE commissions won't even approve credit for things that aren't strictly related to the practice side of the Delta. So we actually have disincentives to learn these things. Um, Yeah. Because our required continuing education won't even, we won't even get credit for it. So um, I think that folks have really got to think outside the box, but we're working hard to at least create a starting point of where people can go. Um, But I think I want to kind of roll that back a little bit. I think it starts with, really understanding two things. One, where are you on the Delta? What is your proficiency in different areas? And then two, understanding what does your role require of you? And that's, and then you look for where's the gap, right? Um, And I think that you do that in a forward thinking way, because I think most of us, I don't know, I definitely I'm always looking at where am I going next because that's going to inform what I choose to do today. And so if we're in growth mode, you want to think about um, not only what is the role I'm filling today, but where do I want to go and what is that role going to require? Because if you're not actively seeking to improve in the areas that that role requires, what are the chances you're going to get the role and what are the chances you're going to thrive once you get into it? And I will point out one other, what I believe is a significant benefit to using a framework like the Delta model. I think it really exposes for lack of a better word, um, what the job requires. A lot of law students go to law school and what it means to be a lawyer is a black box. What, what does that mean? <laughs> and yeah. if you, and if you just base what it means off of the experience you get in law school, you still don't have a clear idea of what it's like to actually practice. And I will say a caveat, I don't think it's necessarily the job of law school to give you a clear idea. Um, I think we've got to be reasonable in our expectations. So there are other tools available. And if you can use the Delta to think about, okay, I see myself in this role in five years, let me look at what the Delta model for that role looks like. And that gives you a really clear understanding of here's what it's going to take for me to get there. Um, And I don't know that we really have those kind of maps right now. And in working with my students, I introduce this to my students in all of my classes. Um, 
I think it's been incredibly helpful for them to say, oh, okay, I get it. There's all this other stuff that is relevant right. and how, where am I going to get this? How am I going to develop these skills? And the other thing is I've actually had students like compare their Delta to a future role they think they want to fill and come back and say, I don't know that I want to do that. Interesting. Like, like now that I understand right. <laughs> what that means, um, you know, maybe I want to look at something else because these are the skills that I want to work on building. These are the things I enjoy. These are the things I'm good at. Um, so I so think, it, it could be a real self-assessment tool, both yes, in terms of I think, almost I think, a gap analysis as yeah. well as understanding yeah. If this thing actually sounds like something you want to do at the end of the day. I, yes. And, you know, and I think what's so cool about this moment in time is that we have this rapidly expanding array of, of jobs in the law, right? Like five years ago, were there legal architects? Were there legal process engineers? Were there legal designers? There may have been, but now you see postings for jobs with those titles, and right. so students are seeing that if their interests lie more on people or process side, there's still great value in the grounding they've gotten on the practice base. Um, and they can take and go in directions that frankly just didn't exist or there were not clear paths for even just a few years ago. And this is really exciting for students. Yeah. And I agree. You made a comment at the beginning of the podcast uh, that I wanted to pick back up, which was, uh, it was a bit of an aside, but you said, I, I don't love the alt as a, a, a name <laughs> yeah. for, for yeah. careers that are outside of yeah. maybe the norm. Can, can you touch on that for a second? Yeah, well, I think the phrase alt can, you know, carry some negative connotations you know, especially if you think of sort of the political sense. And so, right. Uh, but I guess all words can ultimately, so you've just got to pick a word. Right. And so, um, ultimately I don't think it's a bad thing to have some way of talking about those roles that are other than the traditional practice of law role. And, um, and we've got to have language to describe kind of this growing array. Um, so we have, you know, kind of alternative legal service providers, and then we have these alternative career paths. Um, it, you know, as much as there's the chance some things will change as we emerge from the current pandemic, I also think that um, our culture in the legal profession is so firmly rooted in this sense of tradition that we're still going to define most things around this traditional notion and these traditional definitions. And so I think that phrase alt or alternative is going to stick with us for a while. Um, and I think we still need to talk about these things as right. much as possible to normalize them and to really um, emphasize and affirm how important these roles are to a highly functioning 21st century profession. And what is now alt hopefully becomes mainstream over time. Yes. And we can always hope. 
let's shift uh, briefly in our last few minutes here, Kat, to the, the, the design side of the discussion. We'd love to talk about the, the role of design in legal, especially amidst this crisis where lawyers maybe need to be rethinking how they're delivering legal services from the, from the ground up. Yeah. How, how can concepts from design play into that? Yeah, well, I will say really quickly, um, I invite folks to jump to legalproblemsolving.org, mm -hmm. which is my human-centered legal design um, website for the course I teach at Vanderbilt. And I have a great resource section there that with articles and books and different things that are really accessible to get started on it, um, thinking about how to use these tools, but I would say that the mindsets and the tools and methods of human-centered design, and this encompasses legal design, visualization, um, process, and service design, are, are directly applicable to how we design and deliver our work as lawyers. And I think especially in this moment when we have this opportunity to really be thinking about our why, why are we doing our work and our who, who do we really wanna serve? Um, these tools are just custom made for digging into these big questions and coming out on the end with really practical um, solutions and things you can implement to, I truly believe, because I did this in my own practice, not only serve clients better, but be much happier in your work. And I think we have to strive to do both. I want to make this final plug that um, as we think about how we redesign the delivery of legal services to serve more people better, we have to make that redesign work better for the people doing the work. It is an imperative. Kat, thanks so much for joining us today. I have really enjoyed our discussion. I uh, look forward to picking uh, the discussion back up at some point and getting an update of how things are going with, uh, with your classes and uh, for some additional thoughts on how design can be applied to the profession. Absolutely. It's been an honor, Jack. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I've been enjoying your podcast and thank you for the opportunity to talk with you. And um, I hope you and your family continue to stay safe and sane throughout this pandemic. Likewise. Thanks for joining us, Kat. Okay. Take care. Thanks for joining us on Daily Matters today, a podcast from Clio. Rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Daily Matters is produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal, and Derek Bolin, and hosted by yours truly, Jack Newton. Thanks also to Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider, for supporting this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Clio, please visit clio.com. 